This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space, a monthly podcast of artist talks, panel discussions, and other events. Tēnā tātou katoa. No mai hoki mai ki tēnei kaupapa korero, or the Physics Room. No mai whakarongo mai whakatau mai. My name is Abby Kinane, and I'm the director of the Physics Room, a contemporary art space dedicated to developing and promoting contemporary art and critical discourse in Aotearoa. Based in central Aotearoa since 1996, we assist artists with resources and opportunities to enable creative and professional development and work to support the acknowledgement and understanding of contemporary art among New Zealanders. Our goal is to actively seek links between the arts and other areas of cultural production and to involve art as a contributing voice in wider intellectual, social and political debate. Kia ora tato. My name is Amy Wang and I'm the curator at The Physics Room, and this is episode 43 of Art Not Science. In this episode, we'll be sharing a recent lecture by Balamohan Shingade. Balamohan is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Auckland. His proposed research takes democratic culture and the unalienated life as its focus. Most recently, he's been a researcher with the Centre for Culture-Centred Approach to Research and Evaluation at Massey University, and as a curator at St. Paul Street Gallery, Auckland University of Technology. He is also a singer of Hindustani music. This lecture was given on the occasion of Brunel Diaz's exhibition, The Way Things Are, incorporating a performance of Hindustani music alongside a discussion of the challenges to art-making in the backdrop of Hindutva, or Hindu nationalism. Balamohan asks, what does it mean to sing Hindustani music while Hindu nationalists attempt to co-opt the tradition? How do we resist India's classical arts and cultural traditions being backed into communalist corners? What does it mean to represent national culture in the diaspora? And what happens when, in the pretense of preservation and protection, the ideology of Hindutva threatens to spoil Hindustani music. An edited version of this performance lecture is published as a chapter in the forthcoming book, Past the Tower, Under the Tree, Twelve Stories of Learning and Community, edited by Irena Shingadi and Balamohan Shingadi, and published by Gloria Books, based in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. The book offers a portrait of 12 artists and activists with unique experiences of education, from street theatre to rap, from the meditation hall to the tattoo hut, we are invited to reimagine what's possible when craft and companionship go together. I encourage you all to look forward to this exciting book. But now, let's hear from Balamohan. Enga reo, enga mana, enga hoe fa, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Thank you so much for the introduction. Thank you so much for having me in Christchurch and for coming out to this talk this evening. I uh, really appreciate you being here. And thanks also to Brunel, whose work and on whose exhibition's occasion I've been invited to present. So it's a treat to be here. So the aim of my talk will be to share with you some of the challenges to art making in the backdrop of Hindutva, Hindu nationalism. So I'll be drawing on the one hand on my studies, and then on the other hand, my ongoing practice as a Hindustani classical musician. So what I'd like to do is break up some listening to recordings with some speaking, and maybe save a little bit of a recital to the end. There'll be three parts to this talk, and each part I'll begin with a piece. In the first part, I want to set the scene, share with you the sorts of challenges to art making that I experience and some of my colleagues experience, and in the second part, I want to offer you ways of making sense of what Hindutva is, what I mean by Hindu nationalism, or kind of especially how it might manifest itself in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And thirdly, I'd like to suggest ways forward, 
or at least share with you some of the ways that I try to negotiate the ways forward through my practices alongside my colleagues. My talk won't be necessarily a response to Brunel's work, but I hope that some of the material that I share offers you an entry point, maybe one among many other entry points to the work, because it's in the context of these discussions that I find Brunel's work to be so important. So I really appreciate the opportunity actually to kind of talk in parallel to the exhibition. So part one, I want to begin with a 10 minute video of T.M. Krishna. I'll say a little bit about who he is afterwards. But you'll hear a refrain in the song. The word is Poramboka. Uh, it's a Tamil word. In its original meaning, Poramboka is a, it's kind of the commons. It's uncultivatable lands. Technically, it's land exempt from assessments, either because it is set aside for communal purposes or because it's uncultivatable. So it's wetlands, grazing lands, land that is not privately owned. But here's something that's really interesting. In today's use, it's a swear word. It's an insult. So, I mean, isn't that shift interesting? A swear word that is used to name anybody or anything worthless. Commons, worthless, you know, that's the kind of context. And imagine, I guess, the piece, when you hear Poromboka, almost like you're listening to the word, I don't know, something like fuck or gritty, you know, because that's the kind of texture that the word has. But it's just a piece to begin us with. The music video from Chennai forms a response to the pollution and the havoc wrecked upon the city in the name of development. So that's the kind of context of this video. Porambokku unakku illa porambokku enakku illa porambokku oorukku porambokku bhoomikku porambokku unakku illa porambokku enakku illa porambokku oorukku porambokku bhoomikku porambokku unakku illa Pulla, 
So I was in India in 2018 for my fourth Hindustani music residence. So it's a music practice that I've been doing for a long time now and it was at this time that TM Krishna who's a singer in this video was targeted by adherents of Hindutva, Hindu nationalism. Now, they were a little bit infuriated because in his concerts he uh, you know kind of sang about the power plants. But not only that, but because his songs included praise of Jesus in Malayalam, praise of Allah in Tamil, verses by 12th century philosopher Basava and 21st century author Perumal Murugan, bhajans by the anti-colonialist Gandhi and poet Sant Tukaram. So pluralism is risky business in present day India. For the advocates of Hindutva such a set list was unacceptable. It threatens the legitimacy of the supremacist project that is their quarrying of India's pluralist secularist foundations with an attempt to construct in its place a Hindu rashtra or a Hindu nation state where quote some Indians will be more equal than others end quote so their allegations against TM Krishna were by then pretty routine you know anti-nationalist anti-hindu and the irony is not lost on us that he is of course from a very privileged hindu background he's a brahmin so calls were made from above threats were issued from below and the concert coordinators were harassed until krishna's program was cancelled although the intolerance of pluralism is not an india only problem it flows in to uh, the diaspora including in aotearoa new zealand but the tenor of intimidation differs between the two whereas a performer's life the very life and livelihood is at risk from vigilante publics emboldened by state apparatuses the campaigns in the diaspora are coordinated by and large by a professional managerial class so earlier in 2018 earlier as in when i was in india in 2018 earlier to that time in maryland the united states a group cancelled krishna's concert after coming under pressure from such subscribers of hindutva who did not like that he sang christian hymns as part of his recitals now india has two very distinct streams of classical music krishna belongs to the southern stream carnatic music whereas i belong to the northern one hindustani music uh, or north indian classical music but unlike krishna i'm an amateur <laughs> um and i like that word because it means to love i sing hindustani music for the love of it and the adherents of hindutva at home in my home in tamaki mokoro auckland have been coming to my concerts and they've been pleased by my progress uh, their favorites are the rama bhajans they accost me by the idli and sambar table and ask me why do you not perform under our saffron banners it's getting harder to avoid them their influence reaches some 50 cultural and religious organizations in aotearoa new zealand even my two tabla accompanists have been compelled to be their collaborators one signed without any reluctance their petitions against academic freedoms whereas the other participated as, as an esteemed guest at their functions and yet they've both been my mentors in hindustani music so what does it mean to sing hindustani music while hindu nationalists attempt to co-opt the tradition how do we resist india's classical arts and cultural traditions from being backed into communalist corners and what does it mean to represent national culture in the diaspora What if I don't want to sing songs for the promotion of the Hindu nation state? And what happens when in the pretense of preservation and protection the ideology of Hindutva threatens to spoil Hindustani music? So to summarize what's happening in the Indian diaspora of Aotearoa New Zealand is the co-option of Hindustani music but also of the broader claims to representing Indian arts and culture by Hindu nationalists. Their claim to Hindustani music not hindus per se i'll come to that in the second part of the talk not hindus per se because that's my family background but hindutva people that is proponents of hindu nationalism how is this happening well their claim to hindustani music rests upon a central conceit 
Hindu nationalists characterize Hindustani music as the cachet of the Hindus, traceable back to a mythic Hindu civilization. Crucially, in their project to make India Hindu again, they figure non-Hindu claims upon the tradition as invasive. Anything traditional is a site of consternation and contestation for the Hindutva movement. And since Hindustani music markets and sustains itself as being among India's classical arts and cultural traditions, it risks becoming taken over by Hindu nationalists who perpetuate a politics of othering and hate, especially of Christians and Muslims. In this way, Hindustani music is siphoned of its Islamic heritage by appropriating the music to represent it as the privy of Hindu cultural heritage, the nationalists in Aotearoa, New Zealand, find new followers for their cause among the yoga practitioners, the white singers of Hare Krishna Kirtans, the Fijian Indian singers of the Rama Bhajans. But the truth remains that the origins of Hindustani music is from the Ganga Yamuna Tehzeev, and we were just talking about that earlier today. To translate that phrase, it is the people who live along the rivers of Ganga Yamuna, a, a kind of syncretic, pluralist sort of location. The birth of Hindustani music is there. So Hindustani music does not belong to Hinduism as a religion, let alone Hindutva as a political ideology. And indeed, the de-Islamization of India's classical arts and cultural traditions is like trying to separate the sweetness from the sherbet. In the end, it will all spill. Part two. I'll begin the part two with a bit of a recording. <laughs> Amen. 
Listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. So, making intelligible to non Indian New Zealanders the real threat of Hindutva has been a kind of a stumbling block for us, you know, because it comes with a little bit of reticence. Because if there's an existing kind of racial prejudice that flows through society, then you don't want to give more fuel to the fire. So how do you go about that? By us, I guess I'm referring to a very loose collective of artists, activists, academics. We've been questioned of its relevance, you know. It's a minorities issue. You deal with it. And it's against the backdrop of this kind of reticence and reluctance from mainstream New Zealand that I want to offer here ways to make sense of it, and especially in the ways that it flows here in Aotearoa. And by doing so, I hope to encourage an attitude of solidarity. You see, I was born in Hyderabad and raised in India until the age of 10 or 11, and then in Aotearoa by temple-going parents. We, as a family, migrated to Tamaki Makoto at the turn of the millennium. So much of my secondary schooling and tertiary education has been in that city. Here's the important point. The common experience for my cohort was that of being obviously, minoritized, and the attendant anxiety of deracination amongst our parents and amongst us too, as youth, was that of being uprooted. And so, for many settlers in Aotearoa, New Zealand, old and new migrants alike, the dislocation from the Indian cultural roots required, and in fact, it continues to comprise, a constant negotiation of settler identity on the one hand, what it means to be a New Zealander here under the auspices of the treaty, and diasporic identity, on the other hand, what it means to be Indian, and what it means to be a Muslim Indian, a Dalit Indian, or a Christian Indian, or, as in my case, a Hindu Indian, maybe, but with very dissident theistic commitments. Anyway, it encompasses an ongoing search for an understanding of inheritances, especially to recover a sense of dignity based on existing racial prejudice and based upon the identity of being Indian in the backdrop of everyday forms of discrimination and racism that in fact many non-white people in New Zealand and another settler colonial context share. This experience, you know, these sorts of vulnerabilities is what is exploited by Hindutva groups. Now imagine a youngster in the crevices of these kinds of vulnerabilities, types into Google that they'd like to learn Gujarati, or that they'd like to learn a little bit of Carnatic singing, that they'd like to take up the learning of other forms of traditional arts, and where do they go, you know? 
to engage with these forms of heritages. Hindutva groups here in Aotearoa has influence across some 52 odd religious, cultural and arts and cultural groups in Aotearoa. We know this to be self-evident by the petitions organised by Hindutva groups against academic freedoms and so on and so forth. But it's in order to help prop up a sense of pride among the Indian diaspora that Hindutva groups offer arts and cultural programs, summer camps, language learning classes, temple visits and so on. Unfortunately, stirred in with very attractive actually and very compelling actually, but in the end very noxious narratives that appeal to India as a Hindu Rashtra, as a Hindu nation state. Importantly, rendering Christians, Muslims, LGBT communities as internal threats, foreign invaders or otherwise deviant or undesirable. There's a, there's a point here about the forms of narratives and why they're attractive. They appropriate languages of decolonization on the one hand, a kind of revitalization of lost cultures due to colonial influence and impact. But the kind of colonial influence and impact that is appealed to in the Indian context ought to be sort of delineated from how we discuss decolonization here. But it's very easy to kind of go between the two, right? That confuse the two. That's the kind of strategic muddling that happens. But it's attractive because it uh, adopts the decolonial languages on the one hand and fascistic languages on the other to promote the idea of the subcontinent as essentially a monolith that has been lost over time. So what is Hindutva exactly? It's the name of a political ideology. And it's, it's important, I guess, maybe I want to begin here by distinguishing it from Hinduism. And I begin with this sort of a distinction because much of the campaigns, if you keep your ear close to the ground, will, led by Hindu nationalists, rests on the strategic conflation between these two terms. So Hindutva, on the one hand, is the name of a political movement. It began in 1923 with a book published by a man named V.D. Savarkar. And the title of the book was Hindutva. And in that book, he took pains to state and re restate that Hindutva is not Hinduism. Actually, he rejected the term Hinduism and along with it, the word that tries to describe pluralistic religions. He wrote, if there be any word of alien growth, it is this word, Hinduism. And so we should not allow ourselves, our thoughts to get confused by this new fangled term. Note here, the decolonial discourse. It's a new term imposed from the outside on our languages. And the purpose of it is to reject that sort of terminology and construct in its place this other term, Hindutva. The object of which, the purpose, the political purpose of it is to craft India and the idea of Indianness in the ways that it flows on into the diaspora as essentially Hindu. Now, what is the strategic usefulness of conflating Hindutva-Hinduism? Well, basically, it's to malign criticism, especially internal criticism as it might come from a Hindu person. It is something like throwing sand in the eyes of anyone want to see clearly. It's the strategic obfuscation which attempts to silence. So let's look at the other term. Hinduism is a very baggy name. It's given to us way back by the Greek and Persian siblings as people basically who live on that other side of the Indus, Sindhu, Hindu river. Anybody on the other side of that river is basically Hindu. That was the original kind of use of the word Hinduism. In fact, the Hindutva movement that seeks to create a monolith out of this pluralism and the pluralistic religions with its diverse opinions, dissenting voices, distinct deities and so on, is a disaster for not only Hinduism, but the subcontinent at large. Now, I won't kind of go further into teasing apart altogether these two terms because it gets a little bit needling. But the truth is that the political ideology that lays claim to representations of India, Indian diaspora, Hinduism as a religion, you can think of as ethno-nationalists in the United States who appeal to versions of Christianity for propping up white supremacy. The architecture is the same. This is why a filmmaker, Anand Patwardhan, put it this way. If Hindutva is Hinduism, then the Ku Klux Klan is Christianity. What does the political movement look like? 
you know, as a people's movement. Basically, it's organized as a network of religious institutions, civil society groups, paramilitary volunteers, and political formations, collectively known as the Sangh Parivar. And the Sangh word comes from Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh. What's the significance for us in Aotearoa, New Zealand? I think the first point should be obvious by now. A political ideology that actively maligns Muslim people is a threat to social cohesion. That much is clear. And at the heart of this ideology is, of course, a production of the other. And the other here is Muslims, Christians in the Indian context, anybody who's rendered a threat to the creation of India as a Hindu nation state. But the second point, which is, I think, a subtler point and quite interesting, is claims to representation of India, Indianness and Indian culture. You see, since the inception of this political movement, the aim has been to unify the majority under a homogenized cultural program, while simultaneously marginalizing, excluding and erasing diverse minorities. So diverse claims to representing Indianness gets curtailed. And I want to take a very popular example and ask for a little bit of sort of, I don't know, interpretative charity here, because you'll see what I mean. So what's come to be staple in people's cultural diet whether it's in Tamaki or here, is the annual council-sponsored Diwali festival. It's curious to note the number of claims to representation that happen at this time uh, that have to do with the Indian diaspora. So this year in Tamaki, Brunel's exhibition was on the occasion of Diwali at Nathan Homestead. And what's curious about that is during those dialogues and engagements, the idea of her as a non-Hindu Indian went unheard. The idea of her as a, and her family as a Christian Indian who are minoritized within that context went unheard. So the kind of hegemonic or the, the sort of status presentation of India as a Hindu nation state is already kind of has been for a long time underway. You know, so this is where I want a little bit of care with this narrative, because on the one hand, you do have racial prejudice as Indian people that you experience. On the other hand, what happens is that the Hindutva sort of movement recognizes it and uses it to prop up cultural programs that are in service of an imagination of India that goes with yoga, Diwali, whatever, right? So it's very strategic, it's very successful. Now, in Aotearoa, we don't see men in khaki shorts who are the paramilitary with swords and bamboo weapons. You see this in India. Exercising on the streets, nor do we have a party like the BJP that actively endorse anti-Muslim programs. So how do we recognize it in New Zealand? One way is to look at the organizational structures of Hindutva. The RSS which is the architect of the Hindutva movement, one of, one of a few, exports its programs, its summer camps, and its sort of arts and cultural activities in New Zealand and elsewhere under the name of HSS, Hindu Swayam Sevak Sangh, New Zealand, where there are camps all across the country. Another way is to look at our mainstream politics. For example, right across Green Party through to New Zealand first, National Party, Labour Party, the endorsement of mainstream politicians to Hindutva organisations in New Zealand. And here's the interesting thing, which is Indian people's voices who are kind of critical of Hindutva get unheard when you kind of go, dear Prime Minister, why do we have another occasion in which you're endorsing Hindutva organisations in New Zealand? And that's one kind of politics. The other kind of politics is just look at people's speeches. Here's a, here's a speech delivered by a New Zealand First List MP who was a member of the RSS, the Paramilitary Volunteer Group in India, in 2014. Quote, I come from a politically active family. My father was a senior functionary of Janasang, which later formed today's Bharatiya Janata Party, BJP. My association with the Sangh Parivar goes back to the days when I became a Swayamsevak Sangh of the RSS at the age of 14. This is Mahesh Bindra to New Zealand's 51st Parliament in September 2014. Another way to look at it is the media. And here, I mean, the work of Byron is, 
It's superb. Uh, just a brief side note to say you should definitely check out Byron's book that's coming out in February next year because Byron's work is actually some of the ways that we can understand alt-right, far-right, white supremacy and the sort of interplays between white supremacy and Hindutva. And, and, and those sort of superb and very unsettling investigations into New Zealand's fake news networks, we find characters like Roy Cowns of Apna TV. Here, here's a quote from Roy Cowns that you pulled out that I find fascinating, which is, quote, TV3 is so, so, so left. It's almost far left. I think that's the kind of television you would have in North Korea, I would think. <laughs> but journalists like Cowns gets to shape the Indian representation. That is who people imagine, the Apna TV network, you know? And it's a worry in some ways for my aunties and uncles whose media consumption habits rely on Indian broadcasting media in New Zealand. The, here, we've got to be a little bit careful about where we put blameworthiness. The blameworthiness is not on the aunties and uncles who consume this media. So what if more of us, including non-Indian New Zealanders, engaged with these sorts of platforms? I mean, I guess just one improvised point about blameworthiness, which is the thing that I always feel so tentative about in presentations and talks like this, which is, and I don't really have a very good answer to this yet, but I think it just demands for a form of multiculturalism that is critical a form of multiculturalism that celebrates diversity but is attentive to the margins of the margins because it, it, it's too easy, on the other hand, to kind of just go down that very well-worn groove of xenophobia. Part three. Part three, I'd like to kind of return to some music. Back to Hindustani music for a bit and just to say that this isn't the first time that Hindustani music has been burdened by the kinds of exclusionist demands that Hindutva are making. In the modern period, my teachers, 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 teacher, one, two, three, four, Ustad Abdul Karim Khan was criticized by Hindus and his Muslim co-religionists alike for reciting Hindu mantras, educating women. Hindu students, and for working with an English musicologist. Even in Khan Sahib's days, attempts were made to split Hindu and Muslim communities apart, but they were largely unsuccessful. Why? If it's to vitiate, vitiate, this tradition failed in pre-independence India when resistance disallowed such a project as Hindutva's to, ta to take on hegemonic proportions. Now Khan Sahib's lesson is to let the practice itself be the proof of pluralism. Not just reasoned argument, but singing with practical intent to disprove the thesis of separatism and sectarianism. Now, to inherit such a cultural tradition requires us to locate ourselves at the crossroads of these sorts of political transformations in the present day. So instead of seeing Hindutva as offering the only pathway to engage with Indian diaspora and Indian people, what I feel we owe these sorts of traditions is that it remained plur pluralistic and secular. 
that it be unencumbered by exclusionist and essential claims to it, and that it be a house for the worshippers of any god or no god at all. So I see an example in T.M. Krishna's concert, the very first performer that we listened to, because his concert kind of invite all of the gods, and he continues his appeal. So performing Hindustani music in Tamaki Makoto comes with a few added peculiarities to do with this kind of politics of representation. In a single note, you're seen to be upholding and expressing cultural identity. So it's to kind of hash out in public, in the Indian diaspora, what the idea of India and Indianness, as it's relevant for us here, is. Here the context and the content of our concerts matter, from the colour of the banners to the choice of the compositions. And that's why I think it's not innocent to perform on saffron stages and to maintain as musicians the supposed separation of culture from politics, that is, from the question of how to live together. Hindustani music for me is a site where these things can be reimagined. How can I draw upon the cultural tradition as a studied resource while simultaneously rejecting culture as essentialist and exclusionist? In reassessing where and how this music turns up in our lives, my attempts to vernacularize the tradition in Aotearoa has opened out to new settings and new relations. For example, Ragacharukesi, opposite the Consulate of India in Onihonga, in, in Tamaki, in solidarity with Muslim girls being derobed on the campus grounds of Otago Girls' high schools, simultaneously at the gates of Karnataka's colleges and campuses. Or Raga Mishrabhairavi, with players of modular synths, artists of Tangapuro, singers of Vayata and Moteatea, double bassists and saxophonists. Or Raga Malkons, for the late Croc Coulter's 53rd birthday, teacher of Tamoko artist Mokonui Yarangi Smith. Or Raga Bhairav in response to a pre-dawn Matariki corridor atop Oweraka Mount Albert. Or Raga Yamankalyan at Kotare Education and Research for Social Change. Or Purya Dhanishri at the Miola Reef Dock Park. And so on. And to that list, you know, it's a privilege to add the physics room and this conversation with you all today. So thank you so much for the chance to speak with you all. Parts of this talk have been attempts to think out loud towards a, a kind of essay. So it's, it's, it's such a treat to be able to kind of think with you. So if there is any sort of points for conversation, then that would be lovely. But otherwise, thanks so much for being here. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. I promised, I promised music, and I'll deliver on that promise um, if you've got five, ten minutes as well.
Sunny, sunny, the knees are good, and neither good, and neither gum, and the sunny, and it's a saga, gum, saga, gum, 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 sunny, saga, gum, and gum, gum, Gama Gaga Gama 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 ma sama ma ne ne sama ma pa ma ga 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 ne ga sa a va pe a That was Balamohan Shingadi giving a lecture on the challenges to art making in Hindustani music within the backdrop of Hindutva. Next week at the Physics Room, we will be opening our first exhibition of the year, Teha, curated by our Toy Māori arts intern, Taniora Tamati Rakati. The show includes work by Megan Brady, Kirangawa Cassidy, Dee Harding, Ruby May Hinepunui Soli, and Arita Wilkinson. Join us at 5.30pm on Friday the 27th of January for the opening of Teha and a special performance by Ruby. Thank you for listening. Tune in next month on Friday the 17th of February at 8pm for our next episode of Art Not Science. Matewa. The Physics Room is generously supported by Creative New Zealand, the Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, Three Boys Brewery, Scientech, and the Crater Rim. <laughs>